Am I there? Oh, there you are. Spotlight. Hi, Stephen Morris. Hello, Dave Haslam. Are you okay? I'm very well, and you're now a critically acclaimed writer, and congratulations on, oh, on that. Thank you for that. Yes, I, I'd like to find the critic who acclaimed me and give him a fiver for his acclamation. Look, can I just start by um, um, also uh, welcoming people from um, all over the world, because I know that's people from Germany, Italy, America uh, joining us. If you hear any explosions, uh, it's actually bonfire night here. It's not Manchester's famous gang wars. No. Uh, an old tradition going back many centuries. So don't get alarmed if, if there's bombs or fireworks going out. Yes. Uh, going off. Um, we're, we're safe, aren't we, Stephen? Reasonably safe, reasonably safe. I've got the fireworks next to the fire over there. So they're quite safe. They're not going to go off at the minute. And um, you're not in Macclesfield Library. You're actually at home there. Are they uh, CDs, books? What are they in the background, if I can ask? This is a small portion of my collection of compact discs. Every one of those discs has been arranged both alphabetically and chronologically. It took a while. It's amazing. I've had a, length, I've had a bit of time on my hands. You have had time on your hands. Yeah. Um, so, um, obviously, the new book, Fast Forward, is a sequel to Record, Play, Pause. This one is about the New Order years. Now, record, play, pause, that covered your early life, Joy Division, um, and it ended uh, it, just after Ian had died and you were in America, I think you, uh, with New Order, you'd reconvened as New Order as a three-piece, uh, playing um, in uh, Hurrah in New York, and that's where the first volume ends. And then the new book starts when you return from America and Gillian, joins the band. So um, whose idea was it for Gillian to join the band? I'm assuming not Gillian's. Yeah, it wasn't Gillian's. No, it was actually Rob uh, who the came manager. up. With, yeah, Rob Gretton, our manager, who came up with this, um, well, astounding idea, I thought at the time. He, he just so, suddenly rang up out of the blue one day and uh, he had this idea that we should get Gillian in playing guitar and keyboards so Bernard could sing more because of the problem that we had was none of us, none of us could sing and play. Some of us could sing a bit and I couldn't do any kind of singing at all. Um, so yeah. So Rob, we, asked, Rob, Rob asked you what you would what you thought of the idea. Yeah. And yeah. Then, did, you, did you then put it to the lads or did you then put the idea to Gillian? I sort of thought it would probably be best to ask Gillian first to see if she was okay with the idea, being as uh, as she'd been in a, a punk band earlier in her career. Um, and yeah, she, she was up for it. And then we had a meeting, a famous New Order jet lag meeting in Rob's flat, uh, where we basically um, got a bit giddy, I think. It's the best way of uh, describing it. We all got a bit giddy and um, decided that she was probably an ideal candidate for the post of guitarist and keyboard player. Um, and so she was, uh, yeah, she got the job. Well, um, I probably have told you in the past, but I, I, was, I was at Gillian's first ever gig at the Squat. In, the Squat, yeah. In, uh, October of 1980. That's right. It was a, a, a small crowd of aficionados gathered, 
Um, yeah. And what you were saying about singing, I think uh, I remember at that gig, as well as thinking who was the female keyboard player, because obviously there wasn't Google, we didn't really know who this mysterious first brunette was. Um, but also, I think you sang <laughs> and Bernard fell over. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a pattern that got repeated um, throughout New Order's career of Bernard. He doesn't do it very much nowadays. He's kind of okay on his feet, but uh, thankfully, I I I longer no longer trouble the world with my uh, bellowing. So how come you sang Procession? Who chose that one for you? I don't know. Probably me. Right. I, I I probably I probably cho chose it on for the reason being that I wrote the words and therefore would be the most likely person to remember them. Right. That that oh, you know. Hooky, Hooky sang Dreams Never End. Yes. Yeah. Did you write the words to that? Hooky wrote the words to that. Yes. There's a pattern here again. Well, because I didn't, I didn't really re realize until I was re read your book that actually the the first album that was written uh, with the lyrics purely by Bernard was Technique. That's what you say in the book, anyway. It probably, it, 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 it probably is, yeah, yeah. Because up till that point, I mean, he wrote the book, he wrote more and more and more uh, as time went on. But there would always be, oh God, I'm stuck for a word to rhyme with moon. Any any ideas? Um, and we, you know, we'd come up with something like orange, June. June. <laughs> nice one, Rob. Um, yeah, that's what we do. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't realise it was it was a, a little bit of a team effort up until then. Yeah, but, but I mean, we're just filling in the gaps, filling in yeah. the gaps. Really. Um, I was wondering, did you read um, Hookie's books about uh, New Joy Division and New Order and Bernard's book? with a view to seeing whether your memory of events tallied with theirs or diverged? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I mean, I was there, I was in the room when, when it all happened. So I, I, I thought it's probably best if I don't because we won't agree on it anyway. We'll all, we're, everybody's got their own particular version of events and that's, I suppose, what makes it interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, because there's been those books, there's been obviously documentaries, films. Films, uh, musical. One of, one of the films, uh, Control, from 2007, in the book you say it's a difficult film for you to watch. Mm. I wonder, um, is, is it the poignancy of, of that particular film? Uh, yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, I think it's Anton did a really, really good job of um, telling the story, and it, 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 it's not it's not true to life, but it, it's true enough that it captures the the sort of feeling of you know what what you were going through. Um, yeah, I I really can't watch it. These, I mean, it's great. I can't watch it because it. it I can't watch it because it's not good. I, I really enjoy it, but it's just, you know, I get too emotional, really. It's probably the only film where I do, I do get genuinely wound up at the end by it. Terrible. No, wonderful. Um, you also you said that, say in the book that um, obviously Macclesfield features in, in the film. Yes. Uh, and obviously you, you grew up in Macclesfield. You still live very, very close to Macclesfield. Yes. And, 
control gives Macclesfield an atmosphere and a sense of poetry that never it's never quite managed to manifest itself in real life. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. And that's one of the things that I, I quite liked about Anton's film, because there's a few scenes in that where he manages to make Macclesfield look a bit like Switzerland. It's like got this beautiful alpine scenery and you very rarely see that. And if you do see it, you just go, oh, yeah, it's raining. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really uh, come across, but in, in the film, it, it looks it looks quite poetic. Yeah, uh, when you live there, it doesn't, I mean, I, I, I know, no. from, you know, when you live there, you probably want to escape a little from it. It might be one of those places. I wouldn't like to cause a controversy, but I know that, that it, it, Ian used to kind of talk about this escaping from Macclesfield. Everybody. And, there's, and there's something there, there's something there that was very much a part of the band and Maybe that that poetry that Anton sees was a part of the band. Yeah, very pro very probably. I mean, the thing is, everybody I knew, even from the, in the first book, everybody I knew wanted to escape from Macclesfield. They want wanted to run away to if Manchester, London. But all of them came back. If it's not one of them, I mean, there's one guy in America, but I think he's he got shipwrecked there or something. But most of them, they all came back. And so, um, so Control was 2007, and, yes. was, uh, and that year is where this book, this new book ends. So it starts with Gillian coming into the band, and it ends in 2007. And obviously that was a, a pivotal year. You had uh, Control came out, yeah. and kind of within a matter of kind of days, it seemed, uh, Mr. Hook had left the band. And then, unfortunately, uh, Tony Wilson passed away. Tony died, yeah. Year. And also, Gillian uh, got ill, got cancer. Mm. Uh, so it's, a, you know, it's a pretty huge year for you. Um, and since then, obviously, Gillian's been treated. Uh, you've, you know, you, you made an album without Peter's input. Yeah. Uh, you played countless gigs. You did the Manchester International Festival synthesizer stuff. Um, so, why did you decide to end in 2007, given that there isn't so much of the story? And I'm wondering if that's because there's another book coming. Well, it was quite difficult because, I mean, this, this whole thing was originally written as one book and then it got chopped in half. And it was new. It was basically before Gillian and when Gillian joined. Um, and I thought it'd be easy, you know, just go back to it and there'd be a book but it was just it was just far it was too long basically it did at one point it did carry on after there are bits that carried on after uh but it was it was just you know like war and peace um so i've spent a lot of time during these lockdown weeks months and years that we seem to have had sort of like getting it down into something that was like a, a, a reasonable length which possibly will disappoint a lot of people because I think they expect it to carry on basically to the day you die, but it would make publishing it a little bit difficult. Um, so it just, it just seemed a good, a logical point to stop it, that all these- all It was a pivotal year. So, you know, I mean, um, there's a lot that happened since, but- um, Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, the stuff that happened since I found works better in a sitcom format. So that's, that's, that's where we're going to go with that, I think. Um, 
I think the last time that we did a proper interview was was at the um, on the anniversary, 40th anniversary of Ian's passing. Um, yes. So we spoke about that in May, and we've also had a, an email exchange um, uh, over the summer because I've been writing a book about Sylvia Plath. You have, Obviously, yes. Sylvia Plath um, was, you know, a great artist, a great poet, mm. and there was a connection I thought between, you know, Ian Curtis and Sylvia Plath. Uh, and more than just the kind of tragic manner of their death. Mm. And one of the things that we, we talked about was, uh, I explained to you how the book I was writing about Sylvia Plath, I was finding um, in 1956, she was a relatively young person. I mean, she was 23 at that time. And she was actually finding happiness in lots of quite simple pleasures in Paris, walking past the river, sketching in the park, the food, you know, just being there. And um, you and I kind of discussed how maybe perceptions of Ian, you know, have been a little bit distorted, like hers has been, by that tragic suicide. And that actually, we forget that these people are humans, you know, yeah. and they can be, you know, funny and daft and bitchy. And, you know, and, and, and I wondered, you know, just finally talking about Ian before we, you know, move right into the New Order years. I mean, there are, for you, there's so, he's so much more, isn't he? I mean, he was a friend, obviously, and a bandmate, but also as a human, so much more than a tragic figure. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that was a, the thing about the first book. I mean, one of the reasons why I ended up writing the first book, The Coldplay Pause, was because I got a bit annoyed that Ian had become some sort of... Um, if you put on a pedestal and you got this image of him uh, where he was a very, very serious person. He was like in, in black and white and he just got this, an image of him being completely morose and deep in thought when actually he was very, very rarely deep in thought. He, you know, he, he enjoyed writing. We all, we all like writing songs, but we were all, uh, we were young men. And like young men do, we, we we liked having a laugh a lot more than you know we weren't we weren't serious individuals. Ian, Ian was certainly not the serious individual you would think that he was. Looking at the pictures and even listening to the music, I mean the music was one thing, but the, once you took the music away, Ian the person was um, a very very ordinary you know a lovely a lovely person. He was you know. He laughed. He laughed a lot. He smiled a lot. Though there's not, there's only very few pictures of him that you see these days where he's smiling. But that's the way I remember him, smiling and smoking and uh, sitting beside me as I took him to gigs and rehearsals. Yeah, the the end of the story is not the whole story, is it? That's right. But that's that's what happens. I mean, it's the it's the tragic exit that leaves no explanation, and so. You know, it's, it's open to an interpretation that's usually usually false. You, you think there's, that this person was sort of... I mean, he was obviously troubled. He was troubled at the end of his life. Uh, and that, that's, yeah, that is the real tragedy of it. Uh, but for, up to that point, he wasn't. He was, you know, a very, very affable person. So... Um... So the first album with New Order Movement um, was uh, obviously an album in kind of the band was in transition. 
and it was the last album that uh, Martin Hannett produced uh, for you. And, you know, he'd been so integral to the Joy Division sound. Why did it not work, do you think, with Martin Hannett when it came to the first New Order album? Uh, there are a lot of reasons, really, a lot. Um, well, first of all, Bernard and Hooky would, didn't like his production on Unknown Pleasures and, and Closer. Uh, I mean, Martin was difficult to work with. He was, he was, there's no, there's no getting away from that. He was very difficult to work with. And to put up with that pain and not be happy with what you did, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons. The other reason was that I, it was doing movement. It was, I think Martin had a bit of a struggle. I mean, we all had a struggle because we were, we weren't Joy Division anymore. We were New Order, but what, what is New Order? You know, is it your Joy Division but without the singer? And it's like, well, no, we don't want to be that. Do we get someone else to replace Ian? No, we don't want to do that. We were sort of defined by a load of things that we weren't going to do. And we didn't really have an idea of what it was that we were going to do. I mean, getting Gillian in was a great start because it sort of, um, it, Gillian was a civilizing influence on us, let's say, a civilizing influence on a, an all male testosterone driven thing. Um, that was one thing, but for Martin, he, we didn't know what we were doing and Martin didn't know what to do with us. You know, he, he didn't. He didn't know who was going to be the singer, who was going to be doing this and doing that. And sometimes I just got the feeling, I got two feelings: a that he thought maybe we shouldn't actually be doing it at all. That you know we should have just like gone back to working in the shop or whatever he thought we did. And secondly, the other thing was I think he was really. Uh, a lot more disturbed. He was. He took Ian's death a lot harder than he let on. I think, uh, and he he didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about it. But I think he was. He was very a lot more upset than he carried on than than he, than, his, than he would admit. And the other problem, which began really um, with movement. Was that he was he he wasn't very happy with the way things were going with Tony and Factory generally because he'd signed up to be you know to be the the sound man of Factory Records yeah. and all of a sudden it was it wasn't working out quite the way he thought he was because the band that used to be Joy Division didn't really like him anymore they didn't like his production um, so yeah and. He was getting into a bit of a spiral of um, substance abuse. Let's call it substance abuse. The the old, um, you know, uh, one one of the times I've heard Hooky um, saying something very sympathetic about Bernard is that Hooky told me that he thought that Martin treated Bernard particularly badly in the movement sessions and would, was actually kind of almost, you know almost winding him up and torturing him by making him do vocal takes time after time after time. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite, I mean, he, <laughs> it was quite fair like that. I don't think he singled Bernard out. I mean, because I, I I got it all the time from him. Uh, but I, th I think he was trying to push him, you know, to 
to be something that you know he wasn't going to be. He, he was never going to be. He was never going to be in. Um, but that was just Martin's way. He would make you do it. He'd just go again, <sighs> again, and he'd do it again and again and again. And there was never any reason. He, ne he would never say, yeah, the first bit's great, but just like, if, just, if we just need this one word, you never got any guidance. You were just like, it was very sort of zen. Uh, and it was, you know. Well, I, I know that you, you, you go into the whole, um, whether you played the drums on the roof uh, as you are <laughs> in 24-hour party people, you talk yes. about that in the book. So we're, we're going to let people buy the book and, and read the true story of the, yes. the drummer the, on the roof. The drummer on the roof. Um, Temptation, uh, the single, Temptation and Hurt, those, those recordings, yeah. um, you describe as turning points. I mean, they were obviously self-produced, uh, there was a slightly bewildering number of versions of Temptation. Um, but wh why did you pinpoint that as a kind of important one? Well, it was kind of right at the end of Movement. I think the last song that we wrote on Movement was Everything's Gone Green. And Everything's Gone Green was really the start of New Order. I mean, it's, that was the, like the first thing where we're doing like a very rhythmic synthesizer thing. We hadn't got the sequencer yet. And like soon after that, we got the sequencer and we did her and we wrote Temptation. I mean, Temptation, we wouldn't have written Temptation if we hadn't written Everything's Gone, Everything's Gone Green first. It was kind of like, ah, this is a good idea. And we picked up the ball and ran with it. And we did those, those three songs. And if you'd have put those three songs on movement, I think movement would have been a completely different record but that's just hindsight really that's just hindsight we had to do movement like that we had to do it and we had to get it out of the way really Rob made us do it made Rob, Rob sort of like made us go into the studio and do this record even though we probably weren't ready and that's a great thing because if we hadn't have done it we'd probably just have wandered off and never done anything so it, it was great but we it was temptation was really that's the sort of dividing line between sort of movement joy division style new order and what new order would become later on and temptation started as an instrumental and then i believe that um, a, a live gig in in bradford uh, bernard started uh improvising the lyrics and that, that's that, right you've uh, got blue eyes is yeah. improvisation that, I mean, we did, he did that a lot. He right. did that an awful lot. He would, he would just, um, we just go on and do that new one. Go on and do that new one. And we didn't have any words, and so we'd go on, and it just makes something up. And you just, this is great, you know. This is, yeah. You know, it was kind of like Joy Division again. You were like writing a song, almost spontaneously, um, <laughs> only could never remember what the words were. <laughs> it's almost like if you overthink it, it becomes harder. You just kind of have to put yourself in a situation where you're utterly unselfconscious and words are just coming out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or, or slightly inebriated. Yeah, that's another word for it. Well, were you not all doing acid at that time? No, not all of us. No, it has to be said. I don't want. I don't want people to think that we were all taking psychedelic drugs, smoking pot and doing speed. No, that was just me, right? 
I, I'd let other people join in if they wanted to, but no, it wasn't it wasn't all of us at all. No, but uh, yeah, there were there were takers. And uh, was it was acid helpful for you at that point? Well, I I mean I'd start I'd had it in my youth and it wasn't very very helpful at all. It was quite nightmarish and like time consuming was its big drawback. But what we discovered was if you just had, it's like frugal acid. If you just had a tiny, tiny bit of a tiny, tiny thing, you could just get a funny feeling in your head and start thinking slightly differently. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like we all went, oh God, man, it's a tangerine. Um, you know, you wouldn't really have known anything was going on, but we just had a, just a little bit and just sharpened you up a little. Microdosing, yeah. I believe they call it. Microdosing, yes, that's what they call it. So May 1982 is when Temptation came out, and uh, uh, and also May 1982 was the year that the famous nightclub, the Hacienda, opened. And I know it lost a lot of money. Uh, yes. I'm sure you wasn't the DJ fees that um, called the Hacienda. Hang on, just let, just let me have, I've got the accounts here. I'll just have a look how much you got paid. Uh, well, I'll tell you, in 1989, I was doing Thursdays and Saturdays, that's right, you were. Five hours on both nights. Uh, both nights were full, and I was getting a total of £160 for the two nights. So Outrageous. <laughs> you could buy a house. You could buy a house for that much money. No, um, no, but yes, the club, the club opened. One of the things that, um, was that, although it was kind of, the Hacienda was on the edge of town, um, it was just around the corner from your rehearsal room, the Joy Division rehearsal room. And yeah. I believe that that um, uh, you, you and Ian were actually quite curious about the building uh, way yeah. before, obviously way before there was any thought of, of using it as a club. Yeah, well, it was, it, it, it was it used to happen that we go down there rehearsing on Sunday, stop at the traffic lights and sat at the traffic lights for a bit. Look. International Marine. Wonder what goes on in there. Let's go. It's a yacht yacht showroom in Manchester. Who bloody wants to buy a yacht in Manchester? It just it just seemed bizarre. I mean, I, I just concocted this idea in my head that it was probably some sort of from for the CIA or something, and it wasn't really designed to draw people in. There's there's something very very shady going on. I mean, yachts. Manchester it just wasn't going to happen but at the same time you, you, there wasn't there wasn't a window they didn't have a shop window with a yacht in it I mean that wouldn't that would have like been self-explanatory it was just a sign and you sort of you, you see the words international marine so it's obviously like a global conspiracy yacht showroom so there's something shady going on and I I always wanted to see what was inside it and it's what we say we so to do yeah um just for anyone who, who doesn't know the story of the hacienda in a nutshell it opened in 1982 for about four or five years it was primarily a gig venue uh there were some great bands on but not was. money was um uh made no money was made no money was made uh in the second half of the 80s it was primarily a dj event nights yes and uh they were full some great djing 
But uh, well, yes, yes, it was. No, also, no money was made. No, no money was made though. And then in the 1990s, it had a kind of patchy, problematic, slow death during which no money was made. Mm. But that's kind of the story. It lasted 15 years though. Somehow, it, it, it did. It, it lasted far beyond that. If it had been a commercial concern run by people who were bothered about making money, it would have lasted six months. It, you know that would have been it. But we 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 had, we want we did want to do something. We yeah we really we really thought we were we were we were onto something. And we, we yeah we yes we knew it wasn't making any money, but because we weren't sort of like destitute, we just sort of ran with it because well, it was it was great. Hacienda, in the book, you say the hacienda was fantastic. It did an immeasurable amount of good. On an artistic and cultural level, it changed Manchester forever. But it you did. kind of know there's a but going to come at the end of this paragraph. Yes. Uh, it changed clubs forever. Um, and then it was basically the but comes, it was also a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It actually cost, probably cost Factory New Order in the region of £18 million. Well, that's another that's a competition that, that that runs throughout the book in which you can you can you can send in your estimates for the huge amount of money that Factory or the Hacienda lost. Um, I did feel really sorry for you. At one point, you go to oh, oh yeah, in the book there's a fantastic uh, there's some fantastic uh, stories about one of your Amer well your American tours. And you have lots of adventures and you're kind of really rooting in the book, you're kind of rooting for new order to take America and you know call right. really well and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be bigger and bigger and and then and, and it all goes pretty well. You all survive, you know. Mm. I mean, just that's, about that's something there's a meeting when you yeah. get back to Manchester. And yeah. they say, uh, could you write a check to yeah. keep the end of flow? And it was more or less the whole profit. Yes, that was that it, was, it was filled you it, up. It was, we had a, yeah, now come in here, come in here, lads. Now we've got a great idea, a great idea. I won't tell you what it was, it was spoiled. But basically it was like, all we need is all the money you've just made. And it's like, well, yeah, we just, we've just nearly killed ourselves and you want all um, the money? So um, I just want to mention a couple of other New Order albums, uh, Low Life, um, you you describe you reckon the band are at the top of their game uh, with Low Life. Mm. Uh, so I guess is that your favourite of the of the albums? If you had to choose one, um, there were a lot of things that I liked about Low Life. It was kind of yeah, it was kind of when everything sort of came together. Um, it probably is my favourite album, though. Sort of, I've been we're trying to sort out the new box set for it now and, and and like wading through tapes and listening to things and it's like when you start being very microscopic about stuff you realize you did make a lot of mistakes on it you sort of get in your in your rose-tinted specs view of history i think it's great it had some great songs on it perfect kiss was great love vigilances great it's like a cohesive whole it sounds like an album let's say and also, you were on the front cover. And there is that, yeah. There is, there is that, yeah. But that that doesn't doesn't really enter into my sort of uh, liking it as much as I do. I mean, 
yeah, I'm not, I'm not an egotistical man at all. No, um, it's a good picture, though, isn't it? It's a great picture. It's a great picture. Say in the book is how um, uncomfortable you are in photos. Yeah. The thought. Yeah. Does it ever get any easier? I mean, obviously, you've been, you've been photographed now. You know, you've been in the in in the music press and the wider press. You know, for however many years, over forty years, yeah. does it get any easier when they say we've got a photo session coming up? Uh, no, it, um, no, it doesn't. I'm awful. I've always had it. I mean, the only way I can take a photograph successfully, as was the case on the cover of Low Life, is to be uh, on the verge of um, collapsing in some sort of alcohol or possibly other kind of induced stupor. I am that, my eyes are glazed. I'm just like, that's the only way you can take me picture. You know, they say, right, Steve, relax. And I just go, right, uh, this, is, this is me relaxing for a picture. So you're not relaxing. I am relaxing now. I can't do it. I can't do it. As soon as you tell me I'm having my picture taken, I just, do that. The, um, uh, te technique, there's a lot about technique in, of, of, well, all the albums in the book. Um, yes. But obviously around that time, um, the, the conflict between Hooky and Bernard particularly was manifested in lots of small ways, but also mm. in a kind of musical way where, you know, Hooky basically wanted a, to, to maintain the rock sound uh, and and obviously uh, Bernard was getting more into the use of synthesizers and that that creative tension in New Order through the 80s eventually kind of splintered and as a result um, you know Hooky went off to do Revenge yeah um, well I think Bernard did Electronic first and then he that's did right revenge. he did Revenge yeah and, uh, then, and then you and then you did the the um, the other two and I was just wondering about you know. Over the years, although I know that, you know, there's, of course, there's bound to be tensions between everybody involved and not just members of the band, but the management and the label and everybody else, the crew. Um, but particularly that, that relationship between Bernard and Hooky, um, I mean, it must have been a bit of a, over the years, been a really kind of emotionally battering on you to be kind of caught in the crossfire. Is that how it felt? And did you just suddenly, Sometimes just think like I'm going. This is this is like waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it is. I mean, when it when it works, when you've got the two things together, which is the thing that makes New Order for me. We have like a rocky side and a synthy side, and they both work together. It's brilliant. But the keeping it together just just didn't. It just proved impossible because like. I want to go this way, I want to go that way. And you're trying to pull in two different directions. And I don't know, I think they've just known each other. Uh, I mean, we never, we never really socialised outside of New Order. We never really had any kind of, apart from me and Gillian, obviously had a relationship outside New Order, but Oki and Bernard, we never saw them when, you, when New Order wasn't doing anything. You never, never, never saw them or anything. So, and I, and I didn't know how close they'd been, what went on, where, I mean, because they clearly had a schoolboy relationship, they'd gone to school together, and they'd known each other a very long time. So there was some sort of history there that I didn't 
really understand, but you just sort of like see things and by you be, you were stuck in between. It was like, yeah, you did get caught in the crossfire a bit. And so you're trying to you're trying to appease one person and you're trying to appease the other person and then you end up like just getting battered. It's like never try and break up a fight. Well, uh, um, I mean, what you were saying about, um, you know, not seeing each other socially out in, in the book, you talk about that that time um, between the Republic album and doing some gigs to support that, which was mm -hmm. 1993. Yeah. And then 1998, when there was an opportunity to play Reading, which actually didn't quite happen. But that in that five year period, um, you met up to talk about the Reading thing in 1998. Phoenix Festival, it was Phoenix. Phoenix, sorry. And it ended up being Reading. Oh, right, okay, but yeah. So um, in that five-year period, you haven't seen each other. So no. you met no. up for a meeting and you were like, hi, how are you? Yeah, I mean, basically, I, in that period, I thought we were never going to see each other again. Mm. I did honestly think that that was it. And again, it was Rob. And you, you just get a phone call from Rob one day. I mean, I saw Rob a lot because he was he was managing, I mean, Gillian, you know, the other two guys. And he just rang up and said, I've been thinking, I've had an offer. And you should decide. It's a, it's a, you know, we just had the offer for a gig. And basically said, just decide what the fuck you're doing because I'm, I'm sick of sounding like a twat. And people say... Will they do a gig? I don't know what to say. And he was right. He was in a very difficult situation. He was supposed to be managing New Order and he didn't know if he got a band to manage. Um, and it was it was a very, very strange um, meeting because we just, the Hacienda had just closed. It was, Rob's office was upstairs and we just, it was like, you were just going through the wreckage of the club and sitting down and then it was like the five yeah. years five years hadn't happened and just yeah. walked in so hi yeah you're all right yeah like he was expecting it aren't you he thought it was going to be some sort of like no i'm not doing anything don't you and but we just sat down and in about yeah 15 20 minutes so, yeah okay yeah so and that was it in in the in the book, there's quite a lot about the other two, and um, I, I particular I, I like uh, um, at one point in that story, Kim Wilde makes an appearance, but she does, yeah. But I think the readers need need to know that whole story, um, and also you, uh, uh, we discover why Tasty Fish was called Tasty Fish. Yes, um, that was your top forty single. Hey, we're very nearly a top forty single. Yes, single. It, 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 it was, yes. And uh, yeah, we got paid in uh, in uh, fast food for that one. And, uh, um, and obviously we were in that, ba in that with, uh, band with Gillian. And in that period, that five-year period, when you weren't socialising with the, with the group that I've just mentioned, obviously one of the things is that, you, that you, your first daughter, Tilly, was born. So, you know, it wasn't like you were totally inactive. You had the, oh, hard no. you had the hardest job of all, which was being a parent. Yeah. Uh, which is a harder job than keeping the peace between Hooky and Bernard, even. I yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing that I realised, um, Benny was writing the book, was that all the way through the time of New Order, I just, I just, we just, but the pair of us, and basically just put off having a, having kids, having a family, because of New Order. 
and that was that was ridiculous really but we just put it off and put it off and like when there was no more new order to be had it was kind of all right let's get let's get married you know just become normal people and that's that's what we did to an extent and having kids um was it was really yeah it was it changed my life it was a very very a bigger job than I thought it was going to be and it was great and, and I also like how how obviously I, I guess it's understandable that you talk about your home life because obviously Gillian is so much a part of the new order story but I do like that you talk about your life you know in in the way that you're a human being you know when you know the death of a parent the birth of a child all those things are really important to mm. you and to anybody you know and and rather than kind of getting lost in the kind of well this was the b-side of this and this was the 12 inch extra track um i mean all that is stuff on is on wikipedia but what yeah. i like about about the way that you write is that that sense of you as a as a, a, a human person human person going through all that evolution and as you say becoming you know a, a starting a family in the 90s becoming a family man and i I do like that because I think especially a lot of men who write books about their rock life like to gloss over the fact that they actually have some mundane but really valuable stuff going on that isn't happening on stage or in the recording studio. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the mundane things that give you the sort of impetus to actually do the songs. I mean, I don't know how people... This is this is story I've heard that bands can go on tour and write songs and that's that's impossible you can't do that because you're in an artificial environment you've got to come back and sort of see a bit of you've got to live you've got to live a life and it's only through like the other stuff that you get the ideas that you can turn into songs I suppose. Um, uh, we, we haven't really talked talk much about um, Tony Wilson but so obviously, um, Tony, as I said at the beginning, you know, he, he died uh, soon after Control had come yeah. out in 2007. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I knew Tony not half as well as you did, but I, I knew Tony through uh, stuff I did at Granada and stuff I did at Hacienda. And he was kind of quite a challenging person to work with in various ways. I mean, he was challenging because he was a visionary and he, and, he, and he had a very clear idea of how he wanted you to fit into his master plan. But um, at the same time, he challenged you as a person, didn't he, you know? And I think one of the things about him, which those of us who came into contact with Carrie forward always, is that he, he didn't like nostalgia. He liked the idea that you kept pushing and finding the next thing and doing something different or better. And I really think that one of the great things about New Order, even since Tony died, is that you still are like that. You are still pushing it forward and trying to do something different and being, you know, and, and not definitely, definitely not being nostalgic. I mean, there, that is the one thing, the one thread that goes through it, for, even from the, from the first book, is that the whole thing about New Order and Joy Division was it was always right let's go on to the next thing it was all you always had your sights on the future I mean there was a bit of a hiccup at the beginning of New Order when we did we were sort of lost and didn't know what the future was going to be but once once we 
had something it was the same thing again it was the next thing it's always the next thing you're always looking for something different there, there isn't i mean music now there is a big part of nostalgia there's a lot of nostalgia in music but i'm just i don't think there's anything wrong with that but at the same time the only <laughs> the only reason you can have that nostalgia is because there are people who keep moving forward and it's that's the more the more interesting thing to me is to you know to keep doing new things i mean that tony says a great thing in that play at home thing about it's to be factory in more places in more areas and that that was it it, it, it wasn't a record label really the idea that factory was just a record company um or the some sort of leisure division with entertainment and it was preposterous it wasn't that at all it was it was far far more than that and you know tony was a visionary but he wasn't always the easiest person to as you say to work with but i mean that was the point it was a challenge you have to be challenged to do things sometimes definitely i mean i i remember when when the band um uh, did the gig in in uh Brussels when Gillian came back into the band and you and you had at that point uh, Phil obviously but also uh, Tom had joined the band and so it was kind of like really the beginning of the new chapter and I remember that in that gig at Brussels you in, included on the set list 586 you know which is hardly like I mean it's a, it's a band's favourite but it's hardly you know one of your greatest hits you know and and um, so I also like the way that when you go and see New Order live, you never, you know, I mean, obviously, you know what you're going to play, but in the audience, we never know what you're going to play next. And you'll suddenly pick, you know, suddenly ultraviolence comes back into the set, for example. Um, and, and even those small things, I think, are a, they're an important marker on, well, this is New Order and this is the way we do it. I mean, it does get harder and harder to do stuff like that, but it, it's when you do do it and it, and it works. It's great. I mean, the, I, I really like the way that we really, when we do old songs now, we don't do it like, which we never really did in New Order. We never played the songs exactly the same as on the album. They, they, we always did something a bit different. And the idea that you go back and you update a song and you do it a bit differently. Uh, and in Temptation, it's kind of that song's evolved and evolved as time's gone on. And now it's like some sort of epic and the challenge is now you know what do you do with it now i mean you've you, we're sort of thinking how can we how can we update that how can we update this you've you know it, those are the things that make gigs interesting and if we ever get to do them again which i hope i really hope we do we will um, we are working on ways to make it different and hopefully better you're growing old creatively that's a great thank you that's a that is a compliment in itself dave thank you thank so, you anyway i'll 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 leave our conversation on a high with that compliment yes uh, i have got uh, questions from our uh from, from, audience so yes i'm going to move to them right go on let's right are you ready i i'm ready yeah go on uh okay but there might be in a slightly random order, but here we go. Yeah, I'll try and be quick and concise. So if I skim, um, I'm sorry. Uh, Mark, Mark Hart from Walthamstow. Um, I'm not just picking my friends out. He's a great no. guy. Anyway, um, his question. What's your happiest New Order memory? <sighs> the happiest New Order? Oh, God, there's a, there's a lot of... 
happy memories. Uh, make it power corruption and lies. Making that was happy. Um, and believe it or not, uh, being in the studio doing technique, the Abethan bit was very happy. It was great. It was it was really really enjoyable. I mean, afterwards, it wasn't. But like, there's just a few moments where it was like perfectly blissful, and it was great. Those two things. Yeah, because the people always talk about technique as the album recorded in Ibiza, but most of the album was actually done when you got got back home. Got back, yeah, yeah. It was it, when we had to the real world when we had to make sense of the the fun that we'd had. Yeah. Um, a question from Joe: uh, Was there a particular chapter in the new book that you enjoyed writing the most? Um, again, the, the chapter that, that I enjoyed writing the most, was, it was again the early years, it, it was, it was um, recalling the struggles that we had with technology in, in the early days, because it's hard to explain to people now, but basically it was crap. The stuff that you had to work with didn't actually work and we were trying to make it do things that the people who invented it just didn't invent, hadn't been invented to do those things. And it was doing that, being, being very, it made you be creative because you couldn't do much with it. And that, 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 that's what I found enjoyable. And just the fact that you got it to do something was, was brilliant. Um, a related question from Lee. Uh, Stephen, uh, you, you've spoken about the technical problems you had with your early adventures in synths and samplers, but is there anything at all about those earlier machines and their ways of working that you preferred to what you use now? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, basically the simplicity of, of them, because there was so little that you could do with them. I mean, it seemed like an awful lot, but now it's like nothing. Uh, but you did you used every single feature on it and i i think that's something that's sort of like neglected now with like computer the, the, the amount of things you can do with a computer nowadays is bewildering and it was just the fact that you you knew the thing inside out it, you didn't understand why it broke down so often but you did know you knew what to how to make it work and how to get a good thing out of it and that that counts for a lot um a question from John. John Nell, you will like the first bit. We all know you're an incredible drummer. Thank you, John. That's a good first. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Where are we going with this, though? Well, which drummers are you jealous of? Uh, well, that's part one. Part two. Yeah. Um, which drummers have told you that you have inspired them? Oh, that, that was two. That was two. Which drummers are we jealous of? Um, well, who, you know, that you might nearly, all of them, all of them, because they're all better than me, basically. <laughs> I can't understand it. Uh, and it, 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 and part of the answer to the same question is lots of drummers have said to me, Oh, you've really, you've really inspired me. And it's kind of like, How? Uh, I mean, it's great. I mean, I really, it's very humbling to think that you've actually, somebody's actually taken up an instrument because of something that you've done. And yeah, there's a lot of pleasure to be gained from playing the drums. I mean, that's why I do it, because it is a lot of fun. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm the greatest drummer in the world. I really wouldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, go on, have a go. You're better than me. Give it, you know, 
give it your so best it, shot. But it, in the in the mid seventies, when you were uh, trekking into Manchester for the free trade, less the free trade hall and the free trade hall and the Hard Rock Cafe and all those yeah. places, was yeah. there a was there a, a drummer that you were? Oh yeah, Jackie, Jackie out of camp, Jackie out of camp. If there was one drummer who I wanted to be, it was him. He he was you know. He was fantastic. I could listen to Jackie all day and all night. Uh, did you ever fancy being a kind of a jazz drummer, you know, with like lots of filth <laughs> and why are you laughing? I had, I, yeah, I did have pretensions. I did have pretensions in that area, but unfortunately <laughs> you need a little bit of skill and sort of, um, yeah, you have to be a bit more accomplished than me and have a sort of like a jazz sense, which I, I I've not got, but I've got, I'm working my way up to it with carpet slippers and maybe the odd cigar. Uh, there's a question from Andrew. Um, Andrew. It's, uh, it seems like the band have had mixed feelings about touring and playing live in the past. Have you always personally enjoyed it? And how has your attitude to it changed over the years? Um, right. Well, I say, I should say in the book, gigs are great. Gigs are a lot of fun, but it's like anything in life. If you do too much of it, it stops being fun. It becomes, it gets boring. And as soon as it starts getting a little bit boring, you start resenting the fact that you've got to do it. Or you've not got to do it, but you are doing it. And I think that's where a lot of trouble in, in, in bands is. They don't, you, it's very easy to start doing something, but it's very, very difficult to say, let's just have a break here and just sort of not do it for a bit. And, and, and you go, well, well, okay, so you don't want to do it then. And it's not that you don't want to do it, it's just you want to do it in a way uh, that, that is, you know, pleasurable. And if you're enjoying it, then other people enjoy it as well. Um, yeah, I like touring. I like visiting places um, and meeting new and interesting people. I mean, one, I think probably one of the... Um differences between um, Hooky and Bernard was with regards to playing live, because it seems to me that, I mean, Hooky still, I mean, he's the, mm. you know, well, he was until lockdown, you know, the busiest man in show business, always yeah. on the road, and that's what he likes and how he really gets his kicks, whereas I think, you know, Bernard would, would happily be in the studio or certainly, you know, not on the road. Oh, uh, but yeah, I mean, Bernard, Bernard does, like, prefer to be in the studio and Hooky has always preferred being on the road. And it's like, that's his thing. It's always, and he's great at it. He's really good at it. And Bernard's really good at what, what he does, but it's sort of like being able to see the other guy's point of view, really. Um, oh, you'll like this one as well. Oh, God. I'm, I'm, I'm prioritizing the ones that say, start with really nice things that they say about you. All right, go a nasty one next. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do this nice one. Stephen. You really have a way with words, the way you write. You bring a story to life. Well, thank are you. You. Are you ready for the question? Yes, go on, what is it? Uh, I know you tried to write a novel at one point. Yes. Do you think you could do that now? This is from Michael, who obviously knows that you tried to write a novel at one point. Yeah, no, I do want to write a novel. I think, now, now I think I probably could, I know enough now possibly to be able to do one but I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't do a novel and say by Stephen Morris drummer of new order or something like that I'd, I'd, I'd probably put it out under another name like Gillian Morris or something like that and or 
Oh, what's a good awfully name? Hector McPherson. Well, the thing that they That'd do be a good crime novelist. Your initials. S yeah. SP Morris. SP Morris, yeah. I'd have to like change it. JD Ballinger and JK Rowling. Yeah, I could do that. I could do that. I'd, I'd write one about wizards then. Um, a question from Juan from Peru. I won. Um, you played Peru, haven't you? I have. It's a lovely place. The food is excellent. The food is fantastic. First place I ever had ceviche. Was ceviche, yeah, great. Amazing. Lima. So, big hello to everyone in Peru. Yeah. Um, Juan wants to know, of all the places you've played at, which has been your favourite and why? <laughs> well, we've just covered that, haven't we? It's got, Peru's got to be high, <laughs> quite, high, quite high up there, just because of the ceviche alone. Um, my favourite place and why? Um, Oddly enough, I think one of the favourite places to play is quite perverse. It was it's actually Las Vegas because I'd always feared and hated Las Vegas. I hated the idea of Las Vegas, the whole glitzy, just everything about it. I just avoided it like the plague. I would take a detour. Uh, but when we played there, I could I could kind of, I got into the sort of Blackpoolness of it, if you know what I mean. So that was fun. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, there's just too many places, but yeah, South America, just South America generally is always always a great place to play. Um, there's a question from Neil. Um, he, I think he's seen that um, documentary made. I can't remember when it was made. Now was it? Was it called Play at Home? Play at Home, yes, yes. Factory documentary. Factory documentary. Yes. And um, I mean, it seems like it was. It was certainly made in the last century. Was it made at the end of the 80s, maybe? It, it, it was, uh, was it 83, 84, something like That's that? Okay. It, was, it was just, we just written Thieves Like Us. But um, in that, uh, there's a, a part of that where Gillian is in the bath with Tony Wilson. That's correct, yes. And I wondered whose idea that was, presumably not Gillian's. You, you're absolutely right there. It wasn't Gillian's idea. Um, I, th I think it was kind of a, 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 our gang mentality manifesting itself. Go on, Julian, you get in the bath with Tony Wilson, he'll, he'll be real. He won't do it. And it was like, yeah, we had to it, it was based, it was to out Tony Tony, I think, that we just thought there's no way he'd do it. And he did. So, but Julian did have a lovely ball gown on. And Tony didn't have anything. There are a lot of there are a lot of soap suds as well. Yeah, yeah, well um, positioned. So many questions. Okay, um, this one you, you're going to have to scratch your head a bit about. This is John who wants to know if you could assemble a super group, yeah. four people in this super group. Okay, you are the drummer. Okay. I'm the drummer. You're not, right. You're not allowed that guy who used to be in Nirvana. It's you. Okay, me. Um, who else would be in your band? Who else would be in my band? Um, probably a load more drummers. Uh, I'd have Gabe out of Factory Floor. He could play the drums as well. We, we could, um, no, we can't. Well, I have Gabe. He's good. He's good. He could, he could do some synthy things. Who else would I have in it? Um, I, I know who I'd have in it. What do you call it? Dave. Your mate Dave out of another Dave out of uh, Fiji and Miyagi. Fiji and Miyagi. I think he's great. That's two. Who else would I have in my band? 
Um, have they got to be alive? Probably, yeah. Uh, that's two. Just need one more. Uh, probably a bass player. Yeah, someone quite sanguine. Uh, oh, a sanguine bass player. Yeah, a sanguine bass. Wanted player. a sanguine bass player. Yeah, yeah. You tell me. Well, Lemmy Springs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll put. We'll just put. We'll just put an advert in the window, and whoever turns up, they can have the job. Yeah, right. Okay, move on. With, um, there's a couple of uh, tank-related questions. Oh, good. Now, good. Uh, Got the manual here. Now, for, for people who don't know this um, about Stephen, he is a collector of tanks. That's right. Um, and, well, military vehicles. Military vehicles. That aren't technically tanks. None of them are tanks, no. Um, uh, and I think you began collecting tanks uh, uh, because you gave up smoking cigarettes and you needed another habit. It was a midlife crisis, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I just needed something to fill the void in my life and um, saw a tank one day and that looked big enough. Um, so I went and bought it and then was immediately struck with bias remorse. <laughs> what the fuck have I bought a tank for? That's the most ridiculous. But anyway, I st again, I stuck with it and uh, yeah, I I I'm your man. When it comes How many to military vehicles do you own? Yeah, I, I own four. That's enough. That's four, enough. That is enough. Um, a question from Ian. Uh, which tank or military vehicle do you wish you had bought and have not yet? <sighs> I always regret not buying the chieftain that was on the Berlin Wall. You know, when the Berlin Wall came, the chieftain up, up there. And um, it got sold and it was going for like a ridiculously cheap price but there was no way I could move it from Berlin and get it to my house so that's the only one really I, I, I regret buying because I, I specialise in British military vehicles I should say that. Um, uh, there's an, uh, the other tank related question is from a different Ian um, is it your tank parked in West Ridsbury and I actually know the <laughs> go on there is a tank uh, parked on um, Old Lansdowne Road in West. Yeah, it's a 432 vet, mate. 432. It's an APC. It's not a tank. It's, an a, it's a 432 APC, that. You've seen it? Yeah, it's a 432. Yeah, I know that one, yeah. Because uh, it's... It's um, it's blocking me it's in. It's 100 yards from my house, and there's a tank yeah. uh, parked on the street. Yeah. Like, I, don't think, I don't think viewers from around the world are going to understand how liberal England can be. Where you, uh, the guy who lives behind Green's restaurant, which is the yes, one right. on Simon Rimmer, yeah. celebrity chef. And he he has some military vehicles, this guy. And he's not he's run out of room behind Green's restaurant. So he yeah. parked one hundred yards from my house. Yeah. And um it's just been sat there and obviously us local residents have been uh, signing petitions we tried to actually sequester it uh, to try and win the battle against Brexit. Yeah. Uh, and we wanted to drive the tank and park it on Nigel Farage's lawn, but Why we not? didn't get it started. Um, so it's actually not yours. He should have given me a ring, I'd have got it going for you. Well, no trouble. Maybe, maybe that's one of your life yeah. actions we still yeah. need to. Yeah. Um, we're getting quite esoteric questions Yes, now. right, come on. I am going to draw the questions to a close soon. 
Okay, um, go on. Uh, there's a guy called David who wants to know, um, have you been making airfix models? Are those your lockdown airfixes in the background? <laughs> yes, they are. But sadly, as I've got older, the old eyesight is beginning to go. Uh, so I've got I've got a cupboard over there of unmade airfix kits, which I'd sort of like, even this morning I was thinking I should really make a start on them. So hopefully one day I will. I've got far too many. Uh, and I, I I would like to have a go, but God knows what they'd end up being like. Um, the same uh, uh, David Huxley, he, he says um, that he looked around Audenshaw School the other day and he was surprised not to see a blue plaque for you. <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't be a blue plaque there for me. No, no, no. Is that one, no. Is that one I, of the schools you left under a cloud? That, yes. <laughs> I left them all under a cloud. <laughs> there wasn't one that I successfully graduated from. Uh, yes, yes, but yeah. Uh, we have another question. Um, how does having Phil and Tom, how has that altered the dynamic of the band? How has that altered the dynamic of the band? Um, hmm. Well, Phil's from Macclesfield. So that's kind of like pretty, Straight back, yeah. Get on with Phil. He's another. He's another Macclesfield lad. He was in Marion, you know, the uh, the second biggest band to come out of Macclesfield after the Mac lads, um, and Tom as well. I mean, I, Tom. It was very difficult for Tom because he's like stepping into, you know, Hooky's shoes, if you like, or Hooky's jack boots. But he's, you know, he's managed to do his own thing and they're just great it's great writing with them to be honest it's really uh it, it, they've got a lot of ideas phil and tom and it's like we're quite good at sharing ideas which was like something that we never did we never did before in new order so it's quite um it's very refreshing to do that and we should do more of it that's another thing we should write before someone asks we should write new songs we've got to play a gig hopefully at some point in the future. And it would be nice to do at least, well, we've got to do one new song. It would be nice to do two new songs and uh, surprise everybody. Um, as uh, Those gigs are in, in, in the diary for September, October next year. That's right. Hopefully, hopefully, touching a lot of wood, we may be able to get, if we're allowed, to do some before that. Um. Okay, a couple more questions. Uh, one, uh, Tony Hand wants you to say a big hello to the NHS at Walsgrave Hospital Coventry, look, who's been looking after him and lots of others. So say, if you could say hello to the... Uh, hello, big it up for the NHS in, what's, what's the name of the hospital? In Coventry, because you're doing a, a great job and I hope you bloody managed to get through this, this terrible, terrible thing. We're going through the entire NHS, but especially the ones in Walgrave Hospital, Coventry. Um, Michelle wants to know, do you have a particular favourite record sleeve artwork? Uh, 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 what of ours? Um, low Life, low, low Life, obviously. Um, in Search of Space by Hawkwind. Um, that's a favourite of mine. Uh, that's the one that folds out. Anything, anything elaborate. Uh, what have I got here? Not very good. I've got this one, Glastonbury Fair. That's a terrible one. 
But look what you used to be able to do with record sleeves. Look at that. Look at that for a record sleeve. Huge. Look, you can pretend you're at Glastonbury. There you go, put it away. And there's, there's a hippie person. That's a record sleeve, that. Not these little tiny things you get on iTunes. I don't know. I think Michelle might want you to be specific about new order sleeve. New order sleeve. Uh, my favourite new order sleeve is probably uh, Blue Monday because it's like it's iconic. It's it's a really simple idea stolen from me. Uh, <laughs> not really, but it's brilliant, brilliantly simple. And I think Peter Savile really changed a lot of things with that. He really did. True Faith is a great sleeve. True Faith, another of, that was just a leaf falling on Savile's car, that. Just, just a leaf. Just a leaf. Artistically rendered. Yeah, yeah. Positioned leaf in the history yeah. of sleeve album design. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was. He was lucky there, it, it went like that. Um, uh, John Montague from Salford City Radio says hello to us both. He hello, says, John. Love to be a rebel. Um, and Good. he wonders if there's an album on the horizon. <laughs> Depends how long this lockdown carries on, doesn't it? Um, it would be it would be good to and you are talking about you know possibly doing some more stuff you know for for, for next year. An album though. The trouble is it is it is actually really difficult to write stuff when it's like this because to write songs successfully you've got to sort of see the other person. Uh, but we, we, we're trying to make a go of it. We're trying to make a go of it. Um, I just have to say, we've had a, a mess message from uh, our friend Joe Shanahan in Chicago. Joe. Um, who's an absolute don, massive. Uh, he is. Lovely. All Things Factory. Lovely Even made me a gig, Stephen, once at uh, Cabaret Metro. No. I know. Um, he says all the best to you and Gillian. And he Thank you. On the Blue Monday sleeve. That's not a question, but it's lovely to hear from you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Um, oh, more, sorry. I'm getting things. Uh, Substance is a lot of people's, weirdly, a lot of people's favourite New Order album because there's so many, obviously, so many great tracks on it. Substance is, so, yeah, it's a lot of people's favourite album. Is there ever going to be a kind of a remaster box set type version of Substance? It's... Uh, at the sort of very early planning stage, yeah, because I mean, the, the thing is, it, it, in the book, I make a lot of comments about my dissatisfaction with compilation albums, but Substance uh, is, is, is great. It's, it, is, it was probably a lot of people's first introduction to New Order, and it stands up on its own, it, it, it really works. So it'd be great to do um, something with it. I don't, we don't quite know whether we've got to do an updated version of it or just like an expanded, don't know how we're going to expand it or like we have done with the other box set, but yeah, it would be, it needs remastering anyway, because we finally got it on Spotify. Now we've got that far. Let's, 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 let's get a proper remastered version done somehow. Um. Are you aware of a book called The Drum Thing? The Drum Thing? Uh, would that happen to be a book of photographs of famous drummers by any chance? Yeah, I don't know, you have to tell me. Somebody, uh, um, Ed, yes. hand account says, 
Um, Deirdre's book. What? Yeah, you are in the book, The Drum Thing, how come? I am in the book, The Drum Thing. Deirdre, a lovely, lovely uh, Irish lady, took um, beautiful pictures of drummers. Uh, yeah, she had a job doing that with me, uh, giving my track record of being photographed, but she actually managed to do some quite, quite nice ones of me. And also because it's got animal, the actual Muppet, the real Muppet, not the person who's, yeah, from, yeah. He had a jazz, he could do a jazz thing when called upon. It could, yeah, it's versatile, very versatile. Yeah, Uh, so it's it's a good book. Two more questions, one from uh, Bethany, who asks, um, I think she's been looking at all your compact discs. Um, What particular album, is there a particular album that you've been playing a lot uh, during lockdown? A particular album that I've been playing a lot? Uh, uh, (laughs) The thing I've been playing, uh, I've been playing a lot. I've been playing a lot of my playlist. <laughs> Unfortunately, because you do get a playlist with the album, which got leaked before the book came out. So I've been playing that a lot, which is a lot of old, um, old, like 80s ones. What, what's been played a lot out of that? Uh, actually, strangely, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan have been playing a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a playlist, playlist with the book. At yes. The book, which doesn't appear on the PDF that I got. So no, I, no. Selections. No, you, you, you can find it because someone's leaked it on. It's on Twitter. You can, yeah. you can, you can, you can go and you can go and get it. So it sort of spoils a surprise for a lot of people. But um, it's so you're, you're on Twitter as Stephen P D Morris. That's that's correct. All I one am. word. All one word. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, Mr. Underscore Dave Underscore. As long if anyone wants to take issue with my interlocutor duties yes also uh, i did expect someone at some point to plug the fact that rough trade have online not only your book to pre-order but also all my books including all dave's books the sylvie plath one's lovely um and and the one you've read on keith herring which you've actually read and i know you enjoyed yeah, that one i did yeah on the rough trade site um, hi becky um, thanks to Rough Trade for hosting this. I've got one more question for you. Go on. Is that... Um, Make it a probing one. It's not a probing one. It's okay. It's a very easy one to answer. I think it's probably a yes. Yes. Uh, would you send our best wishes to your lovely family, Gillian, uh, Tilly and Grace? They appear in the book and they are great girls. And uh, I just want us to say hello to them and send love to them. Will you do that for us? I will do that. Well, you could do it yourself, but they're too busy watching bloody The Price is Right or something. Um, yes, I will do that. Thank you very much. That's very kind. And I'm sure they re- return. They will well, give you a big hello as well. And thank you. And thank you, Rough Trade. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dave. Nice to see you. Thank you.